This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, <laughs> did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Laura Modi. Laura is the CEO and co-founder of Bobby, the first woman-owned organic infant formula brand in the U.S., before starting Bobby, Laura was an executive at Airbnb, and before that, she was at Google. Today, I was curious to learn more about her trajectory and the moment that spurred the investigation that led her to Bobby. There's so much that I respect and admire about Laura as a business person and how she's disrupting the stigma in our culture around how people feed their babies. And beyond that, her work is recalibrating more broadly how we think about and value motherhood. I'll also say, unrelated to motherhood, that if you are trying to evolve in any kind of long-standing industry, Laura's insights are invaluable. So let's get to Laura Modi. I'm just going to start off by saying, well, you know how much I love you as a person and how much I respect you as a businesswoman. And I think you know philosophically how much I revere iconoclasts, women in business who come in to disrupt an existing paradigm in the cause for good. And that's exactly what you did with Bobby. I think you're also rebranding and recalibrating our ideas around breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. And I want to talk to you about so many aspects of what you've been able to do, but I just want to say you are such a baller. I can't even tell you how much that means. From also such an incredible business leader, challenging everything. Thank you. This is like for the betterment of our culture and how mothers support one another and baby's health and everything. And I'm going to get into all of that. But you know what I want to start with? I realize I don't know much about the little Laura Modi oh. <laughs> in Ireland. Will you tell me about where in Ireland were you born? Where did you grow up? Yeah. How did you end up 
getting into technology. Tell me about a little bit about your origin story. So I grew up in the West of Ireland. And if anyone's been in the West of Ireland, it is literally one of the most remote cultures in the world. It's an adorable town, probably one of the bigger towns in the West of Ireland. We actually won the tidiest town in the country <laughs> for about <laughs> three years in a row. And it's uh, my claim to fame when people are traveling around to go visit Westport, if anyone's listening. And I grew up there as the eldest of five in a very entrepreneurial family. My dad is second generation manufacturing business, actually. So we are the largest producers of PPE clothing. Very, very sexy stuff. Hard hats and, and gloves and masks and all of those wow. things. Um, never a dream to get into, to be honest. It was like growing up, I got to watch what it meant to be an entrepreneur. I was inspired by the growth of the company and a family business, but uh, getting into construction clothing was, you know, not top of the list. Did your dad want you to? Oh my God, of course he did. Like, okay. Of course, there was way too many interventions in my life where I felt this is my destiny. This is where I'll end up. But I also remember one of the things that he felt very strongly about was that we got real world experience and especially out there in industries that were evolving and changing and being able to bring that experience back to the family business. And tech, you know, tech 20 plus years ago was just, that was the thing that was new and hot on everyone's mind. If you were leaving college, you wanted to join a tech startup, a tech company. But you went to Dublin School of Technology, right? I did. I did. So I went to DIT and it was real. It was just business and technology, straight up business. I studied accounting and marketing, and it was all taking into the future world of just technology and what that looked like. And like, even you know, basic things at the time, it was like, what will the internet do for business? <laughs> um, at the time, Dublin actually was becoming a hub for a lot of big tech companies for all different reasons. But anyone, you know, from the tech space knows that if you were setting up a European headquarters, you were doing it in Dublin. And Google was one of the first big companies there. And I decided to throw my hat in the ring and see if I could get a job at Google. And I did. Just right out of college? Right out of college. It was a dream. And I was working there directly in Dublin. And I thought, you know what, let me just try my hand and see if I can get a job out in California. And again, this is like a good Irish Hill Mary. Let's see what happens. <laughs> so I applied and I got like a product ops role out in Silicon Valley. I'd never been to California before. I'll never forget telling my parents. And I think everyone's just blown away. They were like, wow, she's packing her bags. That's it. So are you really close to them? Very close. Very close. And um, close to your siblings? Extremely. So much so. I can't imagine not having as many children as what I grew up with, like with my <laughs> siblings. So yes, we're very close. It's a very close family. My dad was one of 13 children, which Irish Catholic side of him is no surprise. And in the small town that we grew up, most of them are still there and they all had four or five children. Okay. So then you find yourself out in Silicon Valley. You're how old? Oh, uh, 21, 22. Wow. 22. Yeah. Okay. Just on just on the cusp of, of turning 22. And I was just living the California dream. I thought I'm going to be here for one year. I'm going to soak up the sun, even though my skin can't take it. And I had all of these hopes and dreams for what it would look like. And 
What I didn't fully realize was that I would become besotted with tech and startup life and the fast growth scaling and just the energy of Silicon Valley back in 07. Like, it was just a turning point. Like, my energy level just, I just couldn't imagine being anywhere else. It was incredible. Every second person you would meet would have these big hopes and dreams in life that I'd never heard anyone express. Mm. And there was just so much optimism and hope and not saying it's gone, but it was something I just hadn't been fully used to and seeing. Mm -hmm. And everyone who worked at Google was just, they were inspiring and they were all starting their own companies and they had these projects that you wanted to be part of. So I got the bug. I got the real Silicon Valley tech startup growth bug. And I think it just became clear I wasn't going to leave anytime soon. Mm. And so you were there for how many years before you got lured away? Four years. I was there for four years. And I stumbled upon a little company while I was there called Airbed and Breakfast. I had a friend tell me that I should go stay at an Airbed and Breakfast in New York when I was traveling for work because I couldn't get a hotel. Everything was booked up. And I was like, what is this Airbed and Breakfast situation? I book a two-bed apartment in Soho. And my mind was blown, especially coming from the world of like hospitality in Ireland and just B&Bs as part of our culture. I was like, are you effing kidding me? I can book someone's apartment, stay in a stranger's apartment and have my own place. I had two friends fly over from Dublin. (laughs) (laughs) We had the most glorious week. I went into work in the Google offices and... I would come home to our Soho apartment and they were there and we would cook dinner together. And I left that work trip and I was like, I have to work for this company. Wow. So I reached out to one of the founders and this was in- Which one? 11, Joe. Who has the most amazing things to say about you. I just had dinner with him. Stop, you did not. I did. Oh, He said when you left, it was like heartbreaking. It was a big loss the day you left. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. It was really sweet. (laughs) He is- just the heart and soul of everything about that company. And just what an incredible leader. They built something extremely special and they are all incredible leaders. I mean, what I've learned from Brian, Joe, Nate, and just watching what they've done to build an iconic brand and legacy, like true legacy. It's unbelievable. um, It's incredible. Mm. So I joined and I remember joining and I called my parents. Obviously, we just talked about how much respect I have and we have for each other. I was like, so I'm leaving Google and I'm joining this company called Airbed and Breakfast. My dad was like, Laura, I know you got the bug. I know you love everything. You know, this whole like entrepreneur spirit in you. I was like, but really to start a B&B, you're leaving Google. (laughs) And they just couldn't rack their head around leaving this big tech company like Google and joining. At the time, there was a lot of controversy as well around Airbnb in the news of just like, some issues they needed to deal with. And I was just so convinced that they would come out of it and they did. So Mm -hmm. let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year we launched a new Goop travel series called the Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica 
If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's funny, there's this pattern around businesses that are disrupting incumbent systems, getting a lot of shit right? It's a pattern recognition that I certainly notice. And Airbnb was no, no stranger to it either. I mean, it's, it's amazing, but you know, they push through and now they're super established, but it is wild. Like any disruptor has to put up with a world of shit as you did when you Mm -hmm. started. So, okay. So tell us about that beautiful, horrible, sad, wonderful aha moment you had. No, it's also funny. People are like, okay, tech. Yeah. Your journey, it all sounds normal. And then, whoa, powdered milk. What a shift. (laughs) Like where, where did your career take that turn? So I became a mother, a first time mother while I was at Airbnb. I also met my husband there and it was wonderful. I, you know, woke up and I still saw myself as this career woman wanting to climb the ladder and balance being a new mother and also being a career woman. But something in me changed when I had her. And a lot of it was due to the fact that I went into motherhood with these grandiose expectations of being able to do things a certain way. And feeding was one of those. Mm -hmm. I remember to my core, the feeling of I will breastfeed because I am built to do this. And society tells me that this is what you should do as a woman and as a new mother. And if you don't do it, you're failing your child. No one ever sat me down and said, hey, by the way, this may not work. And if it doesn't, it's okay. Like there's never a, an honest conversation about how this might go. And five days into having her, I got mastitis. And, you know, I've also come to learn that I kind of brought it on myself because of bad latch and I didn't get the education I needed and all the support and all of that. I remember going to see a lactation consultant trying to get help to feed and she saw my nipples and she's like, oh, they're ugly because they were bleeding and they were blistered and they were infected because that's what mastitis is. They were infected. And I can't even tell you how badly those words played on me. And, you know, I knew like it was such a balance. And I've also come to learn that they were not trying to make me feel bad. They were trying to make me realize that we can get past this and like we can make them look better. But like there was just certain things in the moment. I was like, this isn't landing for me. I'm really struggling. Yeah. And I had to go to a pharmacy to supplement my inability to feed her. And I remember going, it was quite late at night and I'm in a pharmacy and you're walking past diapers. And I'm now standing here as a new mother with a five day old asking you to unlock this powdered milk. And I just felt guilty and embarrassed. And all of the emotions anyway, led to what we all know today, which is just the inspiration to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And the shame piece is, it's incredible how pervasive that is in our culture. Like us 
you know, judging other mothers for how they're feeding and the choices that they're making. I do think we're making progress there. And I think actually you've had a big hand in shifting perceptions around that. And, you know, I always am sort of fascinated by the degree to which we want to judge other women and judge other mothers for how they choose to do things. Like it's so deep in us. I don't know why it exists to that degree. I know. We all think we have the right answer and it's, it's never our first instinct to say, wow, I just respect so much that this woman is doing it her way. And I'm still guilty. And I catch myself. Why do you think we bring so much judgment? So I spent a lot of time kind of studying the psychology of all of this because it plays so much into the narrative and how do you change a conversation? And a few things that really jump out is that as humans and especially parents, you are wired to want to share feedback and advice and help to people because if it worked for you, you believe it's going to work for everyone else. Right. And I think in the more kind of benefit of the doubt approach, we're all conditioned to want to be able to share what worked for us and the desire to help someone else. And that's kind of the, the hopeful side and why we end up doing that as you positive light. The positive an- angle of it. Yeah. Um, and then unfortunately, some of the the negative side associated with specifically how you choose to feed your baby, sadly has just been a condition over decades of changing narrative, science not evolving with these Mm -hmm. products to be able to meet where we're at. And a lot of, in many ways, kind of corrupt practices of predatory historical formula companies. And I think that's been a little bit of the challenge as well I've had in this space is I fundamentally believe that women need more choices, that moms and parents need more choices. I mean, we know it. 83% will need to turn the formula. But the predatory practices of historical formula companies has unfortunately not opened any doors for people to want to come in and do it differently. Yeah. It's daunting. Yeah. So we are dealing with just decades of perception and conditioning for how people perceive formula. And we're trying to change that. So also you're changing it by making such a better product. I mean, you know, and this is what's so one of the many beautiful things about what you've done is if a product is beautiful and healthy and organic, and it's got your DHEAs and your whey protein and all your good stuff that you've put in there. And it, the actual product is beautiful, nutrient dense, safe, healthy food for an infant. Then you can change the culture on it because the product itself is nothing to judge. Oh, Gwen, it's so beautifully said. That's exactly it. And it has to start with that. I mean, it has to start with the product just being something that you can stand by. And in our situation, it's something you would feed your own baby. Exactly. I was able to develop this product and then went on to have two more babies. And I will stand behind it any day. And a part of this is we built a company of people, of scientists, of marketers, of operators who all feed their babies this product and have developed it because that's what they want. Um, And this is what babies deserve. I mean, the best milk and the best nutrients should be what they get. Definitely. It's, um, It's shocking to think 
the same formula that I went to go buy my child was exactly the same formula that my mom was probably buying me almost 40 years ago. And to think that in decades of science evolving and us understanding more about nutrients and organics has grown in the last 40 years, that we haven't really seen one of the most important products, which is a baby's first food, actually evolve to catch up with it. Right. So you you had the idea in that moment to say like, I were you looking at the ingredients panel going, I want something better to put in this baby girl? So funny. Everyone's always like, so then you left the pharmacy and you started Bobby. I'm like, eh, not quite. <laughs> and I was postpartum emotional state. And yes, I think I was staring at the ingredients going, what the hell is a nucleotide? And I needed to look these things up. And then why is the first ingredient corn syrup? Maybe there's something I'm missing here. I know. And it's still organic. So that's unusual. So then you're just dealing with this conflict of not feeling good about the product you're giving her. So I went on, and I know you do this as well, which is, I just went on a research rabbit hole. Like I almost became my own mini PhD for like the next six months and studying everything about the ingredients, the industry, why it is the way it is. Why do only two companies own the whole market? Why have we not seen these ingredients evolve or the FDA approval process and how that gets in the way? And the research project just pulls me into an understanding that there actually is better out there in the world. Mm -hmm. Actually, going back to my roots, I watched my sibling, uh, I watched my sister and I watched my cousins feed their babies products that they were proud of in Europe. Yeah. It's like, huh. You guys openly talk about it. You're proud of the formula you feed them. I was like, but why is it that we don't feel that here in the US? And as I dug into the product quality and what it meant to evolve the nutritional standards, the European Commission was just a better example for it. And across the board, you see it in so many other products. You do. So the last time the EU updated their nutritional standards was in 2019 to meet the latest science in comparison to the FDA, which was in the early 80s. So how would you kind of characterize and articulate the difference between a European formula and, and a standard American baby formula? It starts with the recipe and then it's the ingredients. But from a recipe standpoint, the nutritional values are at certain levels that meet the latest science. And that doesn't always mean that they're higher. Sometimes in some cases, it means that they're lower. For example, the guardrails for iron is lower in Europe because science has shown that a baby of a certain size mixed with all of these other nutrients should be careful not to consume too much iron. But there's some really interesting narratives out there where people just feel like more is better. You need more. Yeah. That's one example. DHA, it's my nutrient of choice. Like this is so, so, so important when you dig into the science. There is a minimum requirement in Europe to have 20 milligrams per DHA. No infant formula company here in the US meets that bar. Well, would not one, does. Bar. one does. One does, <laughs> which is, and it was very important. I wanted to meet the European nutritional standards and still challenge the status quo and be able to say, how do we continue to evolve this? So we are the only formula company that meets the recipe nutrient requirements set by Europe. And no other formula here in the U.S. would pass that bar. Now, the other one's just ingredients. If the majority of the product is going to be milk, 
Why make it conventional? Choose grass-fed organic milk. Look at the practices by which the supply chain um, exists, small batch farming. Um, this was really, really important to look at the, the entire supply chain and not just come forward and say, just because it needs milk, let's go down this path. That comes with some cost trade-offs, but yeah. I will do it any day for quality. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so amazing. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. So I remember when you were telling me the story about when the FDA raided your facility. <laughs> I love these, these, these snafus we get into as early. I know. And now your product is FDA approved, which to a layman, this is not my area. Like it seems like a, an unbelievable feat. Will you educate me a little bit about what that process is like? You know, it's hard. It's hard. And maybe this is also just my personality. It's not impossible. You know, it's, I think it's been hard because it's been so guarded and it requires a lot of capital and it requires a lot of time. And honestly, it requires just a lot of smarts to figure out like the different steps involved to be able to get it done. Yeah. What are the protein efficiency ratio studies you need to be doing on your product to make sure it meets the protein efficiency? How do you do shelf-stable testing and for how long and what are all the things that you're testing for? What are the 2,000 safety checks you need to go through? Um, and maybe it's also just how I approach life, but like once you kind of lay it all down and you create a clear plan, it's just a checklist you need to work through one by one. Mm -hmm. Validate to the FDA that this product meets the requirements that a baby needs to be able to grow and develop. And that's essentially the submission you need to make. Right. Um, all of that said, it took years and a lot of capital. And thank God I was having babies during that time because it just kept a different distraction going as well. <laughs> but yeah, this was, we went through that process after having a little bit of a back and forth. I don't want to say a fight, but you know, some disagreements with the FDA. And that journey, which I now call our heroin journey with the FDA, was just an eye-opener that when you enter a regulated space, like infant formula, which should be regulated, it's also really, really important that you work with the key stakeholders in the space, and the FDA is one of them, yeah. to really make sure that if you're going to evolve the industry, you figure out how to do that together. Being defiant or trying to do things your own, like... Yeah, it's finding the partnership may feel longer, but it's definitely the right approach. Yeah, but it's sort of the, you know, the Gandhi way, like peacefully and <laughs> with Gandhi way. <laughs> True. <laughs> but did, did you have a lot of pushback? I mean, just in general, I mean, the were the incumbents threatened by your new formulation? Like, how has that been? How has this disruption mm. and education piece gone in terms of like the existing market? Players. Yeah, mm -hmm. players. You know, I think 
oh my God, now I'm totally blanking what the quote is. Like, you know, first they laugh at you or first they yeah. ignore you, then they laugh at you. And I, I feel like that's been a little bit of our journey. And in many ways, I think anyone coming into an existing established industry that hasn't been changed in decades, and maybe I liken this to Airbnb too, people see you coming, you're making a little bit of noise in the press, your yeah. product's getting some attention, but there's a lot of ignoring because it's a distraction that I don't think many people want to take on. And only in the last year or two, do I think we've gotten to a place where I think we've gotten the level of attention where maybe the incumbents are saying, you know what, if we also want to keep up, then we also need to start changing our product and we need to meet some of these standards because the reality is our growth and our velocity is the highest seen in the history of formula. So I do think some attention is also being seen right now, <laughs> but it's taken some time. Did you feel, you know, like at any point, like, wow, this is a lot of, a lot of flack I'm getting or a lot of pushback? Mm, yes, so much. I think it might surprise, maybe it doesn't surprise anyone. It's funny how much pushback I even got from total strangers. When I say that, like I received hate mail for being in the formula industry at all. Wow. Why? Just, I remember the first kind of like round of press that was got. And it makes me proud now because I just think about how much the industry has evolved where we can talk about formula so openly, but even six years ago, talking about infant formula and talking about like dedicating your, your life to evolving this industry. If you come in with a mindset that mothers should be breastfeeding and that there's no room for alternatives. And this not should be something that we should be putting on a pedestal or glorifying. It got some pushback. And I still do. I receive it all the time. We push some materials out and there's a lot of opinions that come my way. But what about, you know, surrogacy or same-sex couples? I know. Like, I mean, <laughs> I know. There, there are cases or, or when breastfeeding doesn't work. Like, what are you supposed to do? Not feed your child? I know. And, you know, i not speaking for others out there, but I think they could point to other solutions, donor milk, other ways to try and make it work. And this is where I think the bigger mission that we have ahead of us is culture change. It's yeah. not just about the milk. I am so proud of the product that we've put out and the fact yeah. that we can feed hundreds of thousands of babies, something quality. Yeah. But to be able to look back in a few years and go, it's not stigmatized and how you choose to feed your baby. That conversation is not even on the table anymore because it's just about feeding your baby the best you can give them mm. or whatever's right for you. Yeah. Um, the culture is so much more as well than just the culture side of it. It's the government has major oversight on this right now. 50% of babies that are born in this country are on essentially women, infant, and children food programs. That's WIC. What that is essentially saying is that 50% of babies, and this may shock some folks, 50% of babies born will buy their formula via WIC stamps. And those WIC babies only have access to two or three different types of formulas. Oh, it's a monopoly. Exactly. 
And I think what just breaks my heart with some of these things is that this is a baby's first food and we have immediately created inequality. Day one, there's inequality. Fuck. Exactly. (laughs) My goal is just to get you to swear as much as possible. (laughs) Well, just Um, keep talking to me though. And that's, that's where the activism in me has just been born on this journey. I'm just, I dig in and I get further and further into it. And I'm like, God damn it. How is it that 50% of families that can't afford to feed their babies formula that they want to choose are now given very few options of which maybe have ingredients that we wouldn't feed ourselves and they have no other choice. Day one, we've created that divide. That's right. So how do you tactically make culture change? Do you guys sit down and think about, okay, th- these are the steps we need to take and and like, what are the tactics? Yeah. Oh, I think at the highest level, it's about changing the systems and changing the systems and the environment by which someone can thrive in that system. Um, and this is everything from fighting for policy changes. Uh, you know, we're fighting for more paid federal leave right now. And we're fighting for the black maternal mortality crisis. Absolutely. Insurance for double mastectomy moms who aren't given access to other ways to feed their baby. If we can create systems where the policies are in place to support this new culture, that's one way to do it. And we created an arm of the business called Bobby for Change. It's basically a .org. And this is a huge inspiration from like, Joe and and Airbnb, it was, if you really want to be known for changing an industry, then you got to fight for things, even if they feel ancillary or outside of what you're doing, you get out there and you fight for change. Mm -hmm. So that's one. I think the other one. So like, does that mean you have a lobbyist, you know, like a a school mom, Washington, DC friend lobbyist? You can do. (laughs) do. I love it. No, really? Like, We've become all our own mini lobbyists ourselves. Ironically, I happen to live in DC and I've gone to more I know hill events and you know, met with senators to fight for domestic manufacturing practices. And we have become our own little policy team. So that's exactly what it looks like. We have, you know, a mini team of lobbyists and we pull together a lot of activist moms and I mean, right now we're co-creating a bill, which is also an education in itself. And it's it's a beautiful thing. And what does the bill propose to do? Domestic manufacturing investment, which goes back to locally produced, supporting local farmers uh, and keeping manufacturing of something like infant formula here in America. And I feel very passionate that like America... American families should be proud of the formula that's getting made here. And we got to raise the standards and make sure that we can can get this made here. We don't have to be shipping ingredients and powdered milk from 5,000 miles away. Yeah. What this bill proposes is that the government puts some money aside um, and supports new competition, which sometimes can feel the opposite of what we want, you know, as a business and as the CEO, you go through the conflict of, I think this is what the industry needs, but do we want this as a business? <laughs> right. So yeah, that's a lot of fighting change. And then you also, you also have this like grassroots, like this groundswell of amazing mothers who <laughs> on your social and, and who've invested in the company and, you know, you, right. Know. You have yeah. this amazing army. And I think that's mm-hmm. really how 
culture changes as well. So you're doing it kind of at the federal level, but then you're doing it in the grassroots cultural level. You have these women who are out there talking about your product and, and, and what you stand for and fighting for you and telling their friends. That's exactly it. And I would say we're standing on their shoulders, just watching the community and how much it's been bubbled up that everyone is out there. And every mother, I think that every parent, they become their own mini activists for these issues. And we get to just use our platform as a way to collect and to, to share. It is a community thing. It's definitely grassroots. That's amazing. God, it's so exciting to be part of. Oh, that's so cool. So can I shift from sort of the culture change that you're helping to propel with these mothers, this sort of internal Bobby mm-hmm. culture? Cause I know it's something that you care deeply about. How would you describe the culture within Bobby? I would say it's represented of who we're serving to start with. When you look at the culture internally, it is 90% women, 70% parents, and every single one of them represents the change that we're, we're fighting for. They are hungry to see this industry just up-leveled and um, they bleed green. Every single one of them bleeds green. And I I also believe that you- For need- the packaging, not for US American dollars, right? Yeah, oh, that's exactly <laughs> it. They bleed green for our brand color <laughs> or Irish color, whatever you want to go. <laughs> yeah, so we say they bleed green. They are bleeding our brand colors and they do it as well because they joined, not because they're just in this for a job. They're in it because they, as parents, which goes back to representation- they, as just a fighting advocate, really, really want to build their own legacy and be part of that change. Do you have like articulated brand values or guiding principles? Oh, yes. Our core values. Let me hear them. They're so beautiful. The first one is don't assume. So this goes back to the fact that just We make a lot of assumptions as parents, a lot of assumptions about being in certain industries, why people do what they do. And we need to approach this with good faith and in everything we do, just don't assume. Even in our work culture, we're like, don't assume that a process is being figured out. No one has bothered to give it time and attention. So if you want to do it, you can do it. (laughs) It's not. Assumptions are totally off the table. That's the first. Next one is be radical. And Love it. It's more than just being bold. We want to be bold, but be like punk bold and and approach everything we do with just a little bit of the edge that surprises people. And I think that needs to be challenged and also the work and how we show up with each other. And it really is beautiful. Next mm. one is deliver ounce by ounce. And that's a little bit of a play on formula and, and a bottle, but uh, you know, the devil's in the details. And if we're going to be feeding babies across America. And if this is something we feed our own baby, then let's deliver what we would want for ourselves. And let's not, you know, miss anything. And then the last one, which we maybe use a little bit too often is nurture the tension. There is tension in being a working parent. There is tension between wanting to work out and drink wine. There's tension between, (laughs) you know, spending time with your friends versus going on a work trip. There's just tension in life and We are embracing all of that tension, especially as we grow as a company. Growth is painful and we are nurturing the tension between not growing too fast and losing quality. And 
we, we embrace it every day. So there are four core values. So I'm always so curious about other CEOs and how they're organizing their time. And Mm. like, so at this point in your career, what are your priorities? Like, what are you really trying to get done with the end of this year and next year? Can you tell me a little bit about your priorities and how you structure your, your day? Oh, I feel so fortunate coming from the likes of Google and Airbnb because, and I would actually say going back, watching Brian Chesky at Airbnb was one of my greatest educations because over the six years I was there, I got to not just watch the company evolve, but I got to watch him evolve as a CEO at different phases of the business. And it was, it was a big wake up call to me that the job of a CEO is to, in many ways, morph to what the company needs in that moment. So yeah. what I did a year and a half ago for the business and how I was showing up or maybe being deep in certain projects and meetings and making decisions all the time, that was needed then. Um, and it was needed because I was setting the direction. But fast forward to today, we're over 100 people in 26 states, and I have new priorities and new expectations, whether it's from the board or a growing investor group. So I have put a lot of time and attention into evolving what I need to be as a CEO today, which is setting clear company direction and making sure that we have OKRs that people are being able to to point to. Um, And at the same time, being in a position where my job is that I'm building the executive bench that everyone else feels like that if Laura decided to step out for a while, they know exactly what they're doing. I have complete trust and faith in them mm. building the executive bench who know where they're going and what they're doing is I'd say probably right now, my biggest, my biggest. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Actually, that's exactly Ooh. what we focused on this year. <laughs> I love it. Let's get wine next time and just talk through that. <laughs> I know. Seriously. I'm so aligned with what you're talking about in terms of, you know, who we need to be as leaders at every iterative point in a business and having that flexibility, you know, for me, humility, agility, you know, always trying to assess where we are, what we need for right now, who are the other people we need and being willing to kind of oscillate in and out when you're needed and where it's been, for me anyway, it's been a really interesting learning process. It's such an education. You point to maybe CEOs and I think that's the biggest thing that you're like, wow, you know what they're doing. And it's like, yeah, but are they at the phase of the business that is this what Bobby needs? Mm-hmm. Is, is this what your team needs from you right now? Or is that what they're going to need in three years, in four years? And that is such a hard mental place to be in, not wanting to be too sophisticated too quick. Yeah. And at the same time, not, not recognize what you need to grow into. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And what do you think about that old adage that, you know, some of the people that got you to, you know, one stage Mm -hmm. are not going to necessarily be the right people going forward. And how do you handle that? Because there's some heartbreak in that as well. There is such heartbreak. So one, I do believe in it. Yeah. And then the same way that I believe a CEO and a founder needs to evolve into where the business is going, I think it's the same thing applies to other people in the business. Yeah. But I also feel like it's on us to help people see the evolution of the company and what it means to catch up. I recently had a conversation with our executives that the company is growing faster than our ability to catch up. And in in many ways- Good problem. 
It's a great problem. <laughs> it's a great problem. We just are trying to figure out where we take a deep breath. In the <laughs> but it's it's a reminder that when the company itself is being promoted, even if you yourselves are not being promoted, you're not changing your titling or changing roles, just staying in your position is a promotion in a fast growth company. That's and true. it's just a wake up call that being on a roller coaster and enjoying the ride and loving the people you're doing it with is is more important than worried about liking the, the next career ladder you're going to climb. Yeah. And who, who are the people that you call? Like, do you have other CEOs you call? Like, who are your mentors? Who are the people? Mm. Do you have a great board? I have a fabulous board. I have a fabulous board. I feel very, very fortunate. They are not just wicked sharp, but they're all just great humans. Many of them were just early investors in the business and believers in the company. And they're also not scared to kind of challenge even my own thinking or to pick up the phone and just say, I know we talked through that, but here's my other thoughts. So I feel like we've developed the kind of relationships and it's taken some time where there is the vulnerability to accept that the board is also there to support and challenge you, you know? Yep. Yep. Uh, And mentors, you know, the people I would like pick up the phone to, a lot of them are just like people in my life and in my past that I've worked with, whether it's different colleagues who went on to become their own uh, founders and CEOs are ones that I've met along the journey. And to have that Rolodex is is something I don't take for granted. It is such a beautiful thing to be able to just go, this person has navigated this. Let me just give them a quick buzz. Yeah. What -hmm. are some of those, the most sort of scary, hold your breath difficulties in terms of things you've had to navigate or is there one or is it just every fucking day every every fucking day and drowning if you only saw a photo of me six years ago I look so much younger (laughs) I need your products I need hair package on the way so I mean last year's infant formula shortage I know we didn't talk about this I know let's get into it holy shit I woke up on like a random Tuesday and the president of the United States is talking about our country not being able to feed babies. I'm literally thinking, how the hell did I choose this industry? <laughs> here I am to everyone telling me like, you're so random, you got into infant formula. And now in between the Ukraine war last year was the infant formula shortage. Yeah. It was the second most talked about news item. So how did you index into that? it was such an identity crisis it was (laughs) it was the like hold on how are we going to survive and then also having the conversations of laura lean in this is big this is companies wait a lifetime to watch their industry go through this kind of a change and how you navigate through this is literally going to be what makes or breaks you Mm -hmm. and it was those phone calls with those kind of mentors that was a constant reminder that even when everything seems tough and you're not going to get through it. They can see the optimism of why this moment is a good thing for you and keep you on track. So how do we get through it? So here's what happened. An infant formula shortage hit this country and we were serving, I don't know, maybe half a percent of the country. You know, we were growing, but you know, we were just coming out. We were only out a year and I woke up and we just saw our growth. I mean, the numbers were just coming in. People were coming to our website, subscriber after subscriber. Our customer count doubled overnight. Wow. 
And for any, you know, CEO, you're like, this is amazing. Like we're growing and I'm watching it go. And then my head of growth, Shireen, just the most incredible whippersnapper comes to me and this is her job to grow. And I'm like, girl, this is amazing. Like, we're just, this is all taking off. And she's like, Laura, we've got one big problem. She's like, we are growing faster than our ability to replenish our supply. I'm like, oh, that is a problem. She's like, so I'm watching our supply that we currently have, which you obviously stock up pretty healthy with infant formula. And she's like, I just want to be clear. If we keep growing at this rate, we will run out of product. And that's when you shift from being CEO to the representation of being a mother. I was like, we cannot run out of infant formula. Mm -hmm. I have 70,000 subscribers who rely on receiving their milk from us every single month. So gather the board. And we had like one of those ad hoc meetings and we're like, our industry is being upheavaled. We need to figure out what's going. This is a growth growing pain. And they were like, well, maybe it's okay. And I remember some of the advice. There was like, just keep growing. If we run out, we run out. But like, let's not lose the momentum we're feeling. I was like, something about this doesn't feel right. It's like, I can't do that. And Especially after- because at that point, it wasn't your full end-to-end supply chain, right? No, exactly. We we were relying on another contract manufacturer to be able to get us the product we needed. And they were already themselves overwhelmed. The country still had the same amount of mouths to feed, but there wasn't enough manufacturers to be able to feed them. So it's a basic supply and demand problem, but it was also heightened by the fact that every news item was creating fear mongering. So now there was overbuying. There was a a, a run on the banks, a run on the milk banks. A run on the, (laughs) that's exactly it. It was a run on the milk banks. It is just your perfect, perfect case study for supply and demand and just heightened during a crisis. So I made the very tough call and I was like, I don't know how long this crisis is going to last. I don't know how long the country is going to be out of formula, but I will not be the company who's not able to send their monthly package to someone who signed up for us. I was like, shut off the faucet, turn off our website. And we just need to send an apology note to anyone who wants us. They can join a waitlist. And the waitlist grew and it grew and it grew and we had to keep our website off for seven months. Of oh last my gosh. Year. Oh my gosh. And I can't even tell you that like crisis of like, well, we're still serving people because we had 70,000 subscribers. We reliably were able to deliver product to. In fact, we became the only company in formula company last year that never ran out of product on its existing customer base. Good for you. But it was a tough decision. I chose our customers over growth. Um, yeah, but those decisions in the long run, I mean, they're always the, I think, look, I mean, I, I'm sure there are case studies on which is the right way, but <laughs> but, but to have a, a, that loyalty and that brand of reliability and it, it's, it's super important. I yeah. mean, you know, I, yeah, I can move out of the rest of my sort of business questions because I only have three minutes left because <laughs> what I would love to, I guess, end with is. As an ever-evolving mother, CEO, head of a culture, pioneer of a movement, like how do you relate to yourself? What are are your sort of inner dialogue about yourself and where you are in time and space? Are Are you kind to yourself? Are you saying good things to yourself? Are you taking care of yourself? 
Oh my God, you're making me want to curl up and have a good cry. I just, and really think about this question. I think so. You know, I think it's hard to know. I'm definitely in a moment right now where I feel like I'm investing in everything I want to invest in in my life. Amazing. And that comes with some trade-offs. It's exhausting. It is so tiring. But in my mind, I'm like, I want to have as many babies as possible. I want to build an empire. I want. I don't want to lose any of this. I'm like, but I'm okay to give up. I don't know. Cooking for the family every day. <laughs> like, what are the things that you have to make trade-offs on? And yeah. you know, I I haven't read a novel in so long because it's either a business book or a parenting book, and yeah. there's just trade-offs. But I'm investing right now very. And heavily. we're in chapters. You know, women and women chapters. have chapters. Yeah, and it's definitely it's definitely a chapter. I think I'm I'm definitely kind to myself and I'm taking it. I had a moment recently, Gwyneth. Oh my God, this is like just broke my heart. But again, it's a reminder of what mothers, working mothers, founder mothers go through where I was on a work trip in San Francisco back for a board meeting and I FaceTimed my daughter back home, who's now seven, the one who inspired Bobby. And not to her phone, to our nanny and FaceTime just to clear that. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't have her own phone. So we're FaceTiming. And, you know, she asked me, she's like, mom, where are you? And I was like, oh, Mary, I'm sorry. I'm, you know, still work, traveling for work. You know, I'm out here and I'm feeding babies. And that's my priority right now. She goes, mom, where are your babies? Come home and feed us. Oh, damn. That is a low blow. <laughs> my heart sank. Oh my God, she's a genius. Where did you become so poetic? Just manipulative. Girls are so good at being manipulative. (laughs) And I just, it broke my heart. And here I am going into a long board meeting and then dealing with like some of the business issues and then a long work trip back. And then I came home and I just feel so much guilt. And I remember like hugging her and I got her gift at the airport. And I was just like, oh, I'm so sorry. I had to go again. She goes, it's okay, mom. Those babies are so lucky to have you. Oh, and it's just like, she gets it. And like, you can feel so bad in these moments and the trade-offs you have to make. At the end of the day, you're also doing it because you know that it's the right thing to do. And they will also see that one day. That's the one battle I'm having right now is, is my kids getting the time they need for mom. Yeah. Do you have any hacks or, you know, do you sort of make rules around carving out certain times of day mm-hmm. or you do, what are they briefly before? Not I- much, <laughs> not much. And <laughs> no, I don't know how this is going to land for everyone, but it's, I make sure that I get like a solid hour every day with the kids. And that's great. And when I say a solid hour, I mean undivided attention, whether it's reading the same book four times over and making sure that we're just sitting down for a long dinner together and a long dinner with like, you know, a five and a seven-year-old and a three-year-old is 15 minutes. And then you're moving on to the next activity. Long walk. It's about the quality of the time with them and, and you're doing the best you can. It's, we are all doing the best we can. Whether we work or don't work or choose to have kids or not, or breastfeed or not, like we're all just doing the best we can. Here, here. Oh, Laura, I adore you. Thank you so much. 
You too. You too. And I'm, I'm just like all of these questions. I like, I want to have this open dialogue with you. You need to join the Bobby podcast and I need to. I'm happy to. Same questions back at you. I'm so happy to, you know, I'll show up for you wherever you want me. You're amazing. Thank Thank you. you Thanks for joining my conversation today with Laura Modi. To learn more about Bobby, head to hibobby.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.